The following audio is from LCBC Church. To learn more about LCBC, visit lcbcchurch.com. Well, we all know that life doesn't always go the way that we had planned. We know that it doesn't always turn out the way we'd hoped. And you look at your life and you go, this is not what I hoped. This is not what I'd planned for my life. And you say the events are just different than what I thought. And you even look at God and you say, God, you're not even what I thought you might be. My life is all so different. And what happens when we start feeling like things aren't the way that we thought they should be, then we begin to ask a question. We all ask the same exact question. It's a simple question. We ask the question, why? We say, why is this happening to me? Why is my life this way? Why is it it different than what I thought it would be? Now, when it comes to the question why, we use it in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's very philosophical, and we're just trying to think through why philosophically is this happening. Sometimes it's more just out of curiosity. You might ask the question, why, out of just, because you're curious about something. It happened to me a couple times this week. In our home this week, we started using toilet paper that doesn't have the center cardboard tube. And I'd never seen that before, and it's just fascinating to me. And so I started asking the question, why did it take so long for somebody to figure out we don't need the big cardboard tube in the middle of the toilet paper to use toilet paper? And first I was skeptical, is it gonna work? But it worked, and it's amazing. And, and why, why did it take so long for that? Or, or if you have been watching James Holzhauer and, and Jeopardy, I mean, he's still the champion and he's about 20 weeks in, 20 days in as the champion, $1.6 million he's up to. And so because of, there's been so much hoopla about it, I thought we need to watch this. And so this week we started watching him and he really is amazing. And so on the particular night that we were watching, he actually, he got four questions wrong, which doesn't seem like much, but they said that's the most questions he's gotten wrong so far in the whole thing. And I kind of counted how many questions I got right and I didn't even get four questions right in the whole thing. And then it came to Final Jeopardy. And so I'm whistling the song and they put up the category and uh, they say the category is something out of the Bible. And I go, okay, I got this. I'm gonna be able to get the answer on this one. Right out of the book of Revelation, slam dunk, I've got it. I didn't get it. I didn't get the right answer, but he did. And so then I step back and go, why? Why does he remember every little detail about everything he sees, he reads? I can't even remember what I wore yesterday. And it's just kind of an amazing thing. I also realized this week, I don't even know how to spell Jeopardy, right? And so I just kind of go, why? Why is it that things happen like that? So sometimes it's just more out of curiosity that we ask the question, why? But then sometimes we step back and we go, you know what? Life is just not good. Not happening the way I thought that it would go. Not happening the way I'd hoped that it would go. We just have this sense that things ought to be different. They ought to be better. And so we say, why? Now, over the last several weeks, we've been using the letter U to describe life. And all of us would love to be at the top of life. And we think, man, it'd be wonderful if we could just stay at the top. But we all know it doesn't happen that way. We find ourselves in situations at times where we begin to slide, where things aren't going as we thought, and circumstances or events or maybe decisions that we make or other people make cause us to just kind of descend and maybe hit rock bottom. And when we hit rock bottom, or even sometimes before, as we find ourselves sliding, we begin to ask a deeper question than just why, and we begin to ask questions of God. And we say, why, God? Why is this happening? We might even say, God, why have you abandoned me? It doesn't seem like you even know what's going on in my life. It doesn't seem like you care about what's going on in my life. Why, God, is this happening in my life? My guess is you've asked that question before. And I know Ruth and I have had lots of opportunities to ask that question, and it's come up from time to time. 
Maybe it's been physical, maybe it's been relational, maybe it's been health related, but we've asked that question of God numerous times. And one of the times we asked that question of God was actually right here at LCBC. Actually happened when we first came to LCBC 28 years ago. 28 years ago, there were about 150 people here at LCBC. Ruth and I moved away from family, friends in Texas to come because we felt like God was calling us to come and be a part of this little church in Mannheim, Pennsylvania. When we came, we were at the top of the world. We thought this is the best thing ever. We are so excited to be here. But what we quickly found out is that that 150 people, not all of them were happy and not all of them were happy that I was here and that we were here. And so very quickly, things began to slide. And it was just interesting. Within the first 18 months that we were here, uh, two different board chairmen, not at the same time, but, but two different board chairmen right in the middle of the board meeting got up and just resigned. They walked out because they weren't happy with me. And they didn't just do it quietly. They did it very dramatically. And with 150 people, everybody had a key to the building. And so what they did is as they are resigning in the middle of that meeting, they pull their keychain out. They very ceremoniously, dramatically take their key off of their keychain. They slam it down on the table and they walk out of the room and that happened twice in the first 18 months that we were here. And so it got to be a common practice when I would come home from board meetings. They happened every month and I'd come home from a board meeting. And his first question to me was, do you still have a job? <laughs> are, we, are we still here? And so much so that every Christmas for the first four or five years, as Ruth was packing up the Christmas decorations, her question to me before she packed them was, okay, you just need to tell me how I'm packing these. Am I packing these for next year? Or am I packing them for a move away? Meaning we may not last till next Christmas, and so what's it gonna be like? And I mean, it was tumultuous, it was rough. We actually, back then, the way we communicated with each other around the church is we had these mailboxes in one of the back hallways, and everybody in the church, once you became a regular at the church, you were assigned a mailbox, and so everybody had this little, it's just kind of a little cube, a little hole, and, and so we would put information in there about the church. It's the way we informed everybody about what was going on, and uh, this is before internet and Al Gore and all of that, and so anyway, we would just, we would communicate that way, and uh, so what would happen, though, is not only would the church put information there, but the people that were mad at me would put things in there. And so you'd show up on a weekend and you'd have a list of all the things that they hated about David. And, and you go, oh, good, um, another note. And um, we found ourselves asking the question, why? Why, God, why did you drag us all the way across the country, away from family and friends to be in an environment like this? And so we started up here, we found ourselves at the bottom, saying, God, why have you abandoned me? And little did we know that God was just kind of preparing us and maybe preparing LCBC for something beyond what we ever possibly imagined. I mean, Easter, 28,000 plus people here two, three weeks ago and 14 locations and never would we have dreamed. And sometimes we wanna go from here to here without experiencing anything else in between. But I think God sometimes says, you know what, before you get over here, I'm gonna take you down and I'm gonna teach you some things and, uh, and you may hit rock bottom before we get there. And one of the things that kept us hanging on, um, not only did we feel like, okay, God called us here, so there's a reason to be here, but um, there, there was a guy I used to listen to, John Maxwell. John Maxwell um, had been a pastor, and so he would always talk about pastors, and, and really what he said applied to not only pastors, but anybody in a leadership position or anybody that's going through a hard time. And he said what would happen with most pastors is they show up at a church, and they get there, and they're on top of the world, but all of a sudden storm clouds roll in, and storms hit, and they find themselves at the bottom, and as they find themselves at the bottom, they start thinking, well, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe God didn't ask me to come here. Maybe I was wrong. And so do you know how long the average pastor lasts in most churches? Two to three years. That's how long they last. 
So apparently churches can be really nasty when things aren't going well, and people in churches can be real nasty. And so he says two to three years is as long as they last. But he said, here's what happens. There's clouds all around, the storms are blowing in, and it's just kind of this awful experience. And so he said, most pastors walk away after two to three years. But he says, what they don't realize is they're right on the edge of the storm. There's a silver lining on the clouds. And if they would just wait, wait it out a little bit longer, they'll see the silver lining, there'll be sunshine ahead, and, and they'll be able to see God. God do some amazing things. And so we said, you know what? We're in the middle of a storm right now. Didn't last two to three years. It might've lasted five years or six years, but the storm passed and, and God has done great things. And you might find yourself in the middle of a storm right now. And it's just, hold on, don't bail out because God still is working. He may do some incredible things in your life. My guess is you're somewhere on the U. My guess is you're probably sliding down. Maybe you find yourself at rock bottom right now and you're wondering what's happening. You're wondering what is going on in your life. And so what we're actually doing is going to school on several individuals who, who just kind of help us figure out, okay, what is God doing in our lives? When we find ourselves either sliding, we find ourselves at the bottom, what might God be doing in our lives? And so let me ask you to grab a Bible and open it up to page 385. It's the book of Esther. If you typically don't grab a Bible, open it up. You don't have one with you, grab one anyway, because I'd love for you to read along with us today. And maybe it's on your phone, however you choose to do it, but read along with us today. I'll tell you the page number, I'll keep you in line with where we're going. Page 385, the book of Esther. It's actually a story that was written about 2,500 years ago and what I love about this story is a true story. It's not just this narrative that was made up by somebody. You can go back in the history books, you can read all about the individuals in this. There's actually three individuals that we're looking at closely. One is a guy named Xerxes, he's a king, king of the Persian Empire. One is a beautiful woman named Esther and, and then her cousin Mordecai and Xerxes, is actually known for his brutality. That's, that's his reputation. He's known for his brutality. He's known for having a quick temper. And Esther, on the other hand, is known for her beauty and grace. And again, it's a great story. And, and so I would encourage you uh, to read through the story. But let me begin Esther chapter three, verse one. And uh, let's jump in. Here we go, verse one. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman son of Hamadatha the Agagite, over the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman and show him respect when he passed by, for such so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Now let me just stop here, just so you get a sense of what is going on. Xerxes the king assigns Haman to a position that's over most everyone else in the kingdom. And so as a sign of respect, when he would walk by, when he would ride by, whatever he happened to be doing, then everybody would bow in respect to him. And everybody except Mordecai. Mordecai, remember, is Esther, the queen's cousin. And Persian Empire was huge. It went from Ethiopia all the way to India. All these people are bowing down. Everybody except Mordecai. And it drives Haman crazy. Verse five. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. In other words, Haman didn't take kindly to Mordecai's dismissal. He didn't take kindly to the fact that Mordecai was gonna refuse to bow before him, and so it filled him with hate, it filled him with rage, so much so that he decided he's not just gonna kill Mordecai for this and punish Mordecai, he's gonna take out the whole nation of Israel, all of the people that were now in the empire, the Persian empire, all the Jews that were there. His pride 
actually led him, Haman's pride led him to the point of saying, I'm just gonna annihilate an entire people group. I'm just gonna wipe all of them out. And you think, how in the world could somebody think that way? How could that possibly happen? But it's happened throughout history and it's called genocide. Genocide actually even happens today. It's been less than 25 years since the genocide in Rwanda. Do you realize close to a million people were killed in 100 days? One million people killed in 100 days just because of their nationality, just because of their ethnic background. And that's, that's in our lifetime. Um, it happens. And so verse seven. In the month of April, during the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, and the reason all that's listed there, let me just say, the reason why you keep having those references is that this is real. You can go back in the history books and read about this. So in the month of April, during the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence to determine the best day and month to take action. And the day selected was March 7th, nearly a year later. So Haman comes up with this plan, and he says, look, we're gonna kill all of the Jews, and so now let's cast lots. Apparently he, like many people in the Persian Empire, were superstitious, and so they roll the dice, and they say, that's how we're gonna decide when we will actually execute the plan, when we will go ahead and kill all of the Jews. And what he doesn't realize is that there's actually a God that's in control. There's a God that's in control even of the dice. And so God gives this amazing 11-month gap between the time that Haman comes up with this idea, let's kill everybody, to when it's actually going to be executed. Verse eight, then Haman approached the king and said, there's a certain race of people scattered through all the providences of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it's not in the king's interest to let them live. If it please the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed and I'll give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. Now notice when Haman goes to the king, he doesn't say anything about Mordecai. He doesn't say anything about his pride is hurt because somebody won't bow down to him. Rather, he pits the Jews against the king and his law, something that's not true. They followed all the king's laws. They did not fully separate themselves out, but hatreds, Haman's hatred for the Jews just causes him to stretch the story. And it didn't just start with Mordecai. There, there's been this conflict with the Jewish people for decades and now, the thing you need to know about Xerxes, not only did he have anger issues, but he also had this flaw that he was too easily influenced by his advisors. And so he listens to this plan from Haman, and he actually likes it. He agrees to the plan. And so messengers are sent out throughout the entire empire to just let them know about the plan. And so go to verse 13. Dispatches were sent by swift messengers into all the provinces of the empire, giving them the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. This was scheduled to happen on March 7th of next year. The property of the Jews would be given to those who actually killed them. And so this message goes out and it says, here's the plan. Well, let's wipe out all these people. And if you help us, you'll benefit. You'll get something out of it. And, and so here's what happens. Go down to the end of chapter three of chapter three, verse 15. It says, then King Haman sat down, then the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. They send out this order that we're gonna wipe out all these people. Now, let's just go have a drink. We'll go have a drink, but the town itself, the city itself, the nation itself falls into confusion. And now, for Mordecai and Esther, 
up until this point, they'd been at the top of the U. Life had been good for them. I mean, Esther's the queen of this huge empire, and so she's experiencing lots of luxury, lots of pleasures. Life for her is good at this point, but it's about to change. Things are gonna change, they're gonna start sliding very quickly. At some point, they're gonna hit rock bottom quickly, and, and so here we go, chapter four, verse one. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city, crying with a loud and bitter wail. Mordecai just, he's in mourning, and he's dramatic about it because he's a Jew, and so he's one of the ones that are gonna be destroyed, and all the other Jews that hear this news, they go out and they wail and they just cry loudly and incessantly, and, and they go wherever they can, and they dress themselves in burlap, and they dress themselves, and they cover themselves with ashes, kind of a practice to show, here are people that are at rock bottom. I mean, this is what rock bottom looked like for them. And say, so let's just show it. We're rock bottom, let's show it. So they wear burlap, they put ashes all over themselves and they cry and they wail and my guess is you probably haven't worn burlap, you haven't covered yourself with ashes, but my guess is you know what it's like to be at rock bottom. And while you might not wail at the top of your lungs, you might want to at times or maybe in the middle of the night when you're alone, you cry and you weep and you wail because your heart is broken. You go, I don't know that I can do this, I'm not sure how. I'm gonna be able to survive. And, and, and you ask the question, you say, why? Why, God, why have you abandoned me? And what's interesting is what if, when we find ourselves at the bottom of the U, what if in the midst of all the wailing and crying that Mordecai and the Jews were doing, what if God had not abandoned them? What if God has not abandoned you in that moment? What if God is at work at that moment? You may not see him, you may not realize he's there, but what if he's at work and what if he's doing something in your life? And to talk about that very idea that God may be doing something in our life even when we don't see him, even when we're sliding, even when we're at the bottom of the U, we've used a concept, a word, to talk about a concept that describes God. It talks about the providence of God. The providence of God, again, is simply this. It's just God setting things up so that what he wants to happen will happen. It's God taking all the events of our lives and just doing what he wants so that what he wants to accomplish will actually be accomplished. The providence of God is God taking all the events of our lives, the good, the bad, as we're sliding, the events, the circumstances, things that we do, things that other people do to us. He's taking all of those things, he's mixing them together, and he says, you know what? It may look awful to you, and here's what we tend to do. We look at each individual event, and we go, that's awful, that's awful, oh, that's even worse, that's awful. And we look at every individual event and we go, this is terrible, we hit rock bottom, we think there's no way out. God looks at each of those events, and he says, okay, that's an ingredient, that's an ingredient, I'm gonna mix that together and make something amazing. We said it's like mixing chocolate chip cookies together. By themselves, you take the ingredients, you take flour, you take eggs, raw eggs, you take butter, not so good by themselves, but you mix them together, and it's something incredible, and that's the providence of God. It's God mixing the events of our lives together into something beyond what we could possibly imagine. So he says, I'm gonna take all of these events, as you hit rock bottom, I'm gonna mix them, and in my time, at the right time, I'm gonna do something that you can't even begin to imagine in your life. And that's the providence of God. And, but here's what's challenging about the providence of God. God doesn't ever tell us the full plan. He doesn't say, look, here's how it's gonna go. I'm gonna let this happen, this happen, this happen in your life. You're gonna be here, and then here are the ways that I'm gonna bring you back up. And this is what it's gonna look like at the other end. He doesn't do that. He just says, you know what? You just trust me. I'm gonna allow events, cause events in your life to occur, and as they occur, 
I'm gonna mix them together and you're gonna come out on the other end. It's gonna be amazing. But we don't even know what amazing looks like. It's just gonna be amazing is what he says to us. He doesn't give us a full map view of what he's doing. And so what happens is as we are sliding down, we try to grab control. As we're sliding down, we figure, you know what? I can do better than God can do. And so we find ourselves sliding and we think, okay, I'm gonna grab control because God, obviously you don't know what's going on, but I do. And so I, I'm gonna grab control of this situation, take it out of your hands. And because we think we can do better than God can do. And interestingly, doesn't matter how things look, regardless of how things may look in our lives, God really is in control. In your situation right now, you may think it's total chaos. You may think, I can't even imagine that God is around. I don't know that he knows. I don't know that he cares. Does he even exist? But the providence of God says God knows. He actually does. More than he knows, he's actually in control of that situation. And beyond that, where you are right now in your life, the providence of God says that God actually has positioned you exactly where you are today in your life. He knows where you are, wherever you may be on the you, at the top, at the bottom, sliding, climbing, he knows exactly where you are. And as bad as things may look in your life, he says, you know what, I got this. And I've got you exactly where I want you to be. And as bad as things look for Esther and Mordecai, God has actually positioned them exactly where he wants them as well. And so while all the chaos is going on outside of the palace walls, Esther's living inside the palace walls and she doesn't know what's going on on the outside. So she hears wind, she catches wind of, of Mordecai and the wailing that he's doing and the mourning that he's doing. <clears throat> so she sends a messenger and says, look, what's going on? What's happening out there? So Mordecai responds and he says, I'll tell you what's going on. All of the Jews are gonna be killed and and so Esther, you've got to help us. Now, Esther's a Jew as well. Nobody in the kingdom and palace knew that, but she was a Jew as well. So Mordecai says, you've got to do something. You've got to go before the king. You've got to take care of this for us. But Mordecai's not, as he challenges Esther, Esther says, I don't know that I like this idea. So here's her response to Mordecai, verse 11. She says, Mordecai, all the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called me to come to him for 30 days. Esther says, look, you know, everybody knows, you can't just go in and see the king. And we think king and queen is just a normal husband-wife relationship. Surely they're talking to each other, texting each other all throughout the day. She says, you know what, we haven't talked in 30 days. He hasn't even invited me in for 30 different days. And, and so you realize if I go try to talk to him, it could cost me my life. It's a dangerous situation. And Mordecai and the people outside of the palace are at the bottom of the U, but, but Esther's actually kind of at the top. I mean, she's living in luxury. She's got all kinds of pleasures. And so she's forgotten what it may be like to live on the street. She's forgotten what it may be like to live in shabby houses. She's forgotten how it feels when you don't have a change of clothes. She's forgotten when you're discriminated against and, and persecuted. And so she kind of looks at the people out on the streets and Mordecai, she goes, hey, sorry, sorry for you. Hope it works out okay. But I don't think I want to lose what I've got in order to step out and do what you're asking me to do. And, and so Mordecai responds back. He says, look, you've got to do something. Hey, can I just say, isn't it amazing when we find ourselves up here at the top, how quickly we forget what it was like at the bottom? And all of a sudden we forget about other people at the bottom and we think, you know what, I don't want to go back there and I don't even want to go back with people that are there. And so we forget and we forget that the reason we're up here in the first place is because God 
allowed us to be there. It's the grace of God, and it's because God gave us the jobs, the education, the resources, whatever it may be, to get us to this point, and Esther's kind of forgotten. And so Mordecai challenges her in response. He says, oh, you know what? You can't just write this off. Look at verse 13. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. He says, you've got to do something, Esther. Don't forget why you are where you are. And you realize, don't you, you are where you are today, each of us, because God has us right where he wants us to be. Wherever we may be on the you, and your life is not just about you. God has a greater plan, a bigger thing that he's doing. And so wherever you may be, God's got you there for a reason. You're there for a purpose, for a reason. And what you need to understand, especially if you find yourself at the top of the you, especially if you find yourself and things are going well for you, God doesn't ever bless somebody just for themselves. God always blesses us to be a blessing, not, not so that the blessings can end with us, but so that we can bless other people, so that it can flow through us. God does things in our lives to bless us, and he says, you know what, that's great. I want your life to be good, but you realize, do not, do not forget. I'm doing this for you. I put you in this position so that you can bless other people. Don't forget that. Whenever God blesses you, he actually has somebody else in mind, somebody that he's gonna bless through you. And we tend to think, oh, this is great. I'm gonna hang on to it, it's mine. God says, no, 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 it's, it's not about you. It's about somebody else, actually. And so just a gentle warning, especially for those that might find ourselves here at the top of the U, God actually says, look, when you disregard blessing other people because I've blessed you, what you're doing is you're cutting off my blessings to you. You're just kind of disqualifying yourself. You're getting cut off from the blessings of God. When you choose to hoard what God is doing in your life and not bless other people, you're just cutting off the blessing that God gives to you. And this is actually the dilemma for Esther. This was the decision that she was up against. Does she continue to enjoy the security, the luxury that she's experiencing in the palace? Or does she take a chance and say, you know what, something needs to happen here. And so she's wrestling with that, just like you and I wrestle with what we do. And so Mordecai actually tells her in no uncertain terms, he says, you know what, it's time for you to use your position. And he says, God doesn't allow you to experience what you're experiencing just for you, Esther nor does he allow us to experience what we're experiencing just for us. Instead, he said, it's not just about you, Esther. It's not just about me or you and me. And so Mordecai challenges Esther in one of the most well-known passages in the entire Bible. And this is what he says at the end of verse 14. He says, Esther, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. He makes the ultimate providential statement of God, and, and he says, who knows? Maybe you were made for just such a time as this. And this is true not only for Esther, it's actually true for you and me as well. Do you realize God has placed you exactly where you are today for just such a time as this? God's given you your, your job, your home, your family, your position, your resources, your education, and he didn't place you with all of those things just so that you can be comfortable or 
make yourself more comfortable. He placed you where you are because you're part of his plan to accomplish his purposes. And here's the tragedy. If you miss your assignment, if you think it's all about me and I'm gonna hang on to what I have right now, as much or as little as you may have, I've just gotta hang on to it, then all of a sudden you're missing out on the very thing that God has designed you and created you to be and to do and to accomplish with your life. And you just missed it. And what a huge tragedy. And you're living in just such a time as this where maybe as a mom or a dad, your family needs you, your kids need you, your husband, your wife need you right now to step up and bless them the way God designed you to bless them. Or you're living in such a time as this where in your school, you've got other students around you that are struggling and they need to know that life does have a purpose and there is a direction to choose in life and that God does love them and Jesus came to save their lives. You're there in that school for a reason. You're there in that job for a reason. God has you exact, you may hate your job. You may hate your salary. You may not like your boss. God says, I've got you there for a reason. And so while you're there, make sure that you're blessing other people. God's given you a purpose in life and you need to know if you choose to say, okay, I'm gonna do something with what God has given me to do, you need to understand there is risk involved. That's what Esther was understanding. This could have cost her her life. And there is risk when we choose to follow Jesus. See, we call it faith. Faith is risky business. And the reason why faith is risky is because we don't know exactly where God's gonna take us. I mean, we don't know where we're gonna end up. God just says, you're gonna end up here. He doesn't say what it's gonna look like. He doesn't say when you're gonna get there. He doesn't say how it's gonna feel. He just says, it's gonna be amazing when you get there, but he doesn't show us the whole plan. And so there's risk involved. And you and I, we don't like that. We like to know exactly where we're going. Tell me the plan. Show me all the details of the plan. God doesn't do that. And so there's risk involved for you and I. And, and so can I just tell you, wherever you are on the U, you could be at the top, you could be sliding, you could be climbing, you could be at the bottom. God just says, I just want you to follow me right now. Just follow me right now. He sent Jesus into the world to lead us, to guide us, to pull us from the bottom, to let us experience what God has in store for us. He says, I'll lead you, I'll guide you. So he says, just follow me. And wherever you are, doesn't matter. He says, I've got you positioned there right now just to do the things that I want you to do so that he can accomplish what he wants to accomplish in the world. And so next week, we'll actually look at kind of Esther's response and what happens to her. Next weekend, by the way, too, is Mother's Day. What better way to celebrate Mother's Day than bring mom and celebrate together and then take her to dinner after we're together. But um, today, here's my challenge to each and every one of us. Open your eyes and realize wherever you are on the you, God says, I've got you there for a reason. And one of the reasons is just to bless other people to make a difference in other people's lives. And you may say, I'm sliding, I can't bless anybody else, I just need to be blessed. You may say, I'm at the bottom, I can't bless anybody else, I'm at the very bottom, I'm the one that needs blessing. But do you realize, maybe it's more powerful to have somebody that's at the bottom reach out and do something for somebody else in the midst of being at the bottom, I mean, how much more powerful can it be than that to say somebody even at the bottom reached out to me and showed that they care about me. And so it doesn't matter where you are, God says, I've got you exactly where I want you to be right now to make a difference, but it's gonna take risk, it's gonna take faith to trust God, to say, okay, God, I'm trusting you that you've got this. And I actually came across a little saying this week that I liked when it talks about risk and faith, and, and it's this, a turtle only makes progress when it sticks its neck out. Um, and you think about it, that's true. 
mean, James would probably would have gotten this one right on Jeopardy. He would have, yeah, what is it that only makes progress when it sticks its next out? Turtles. I could have gotten that one maybe. So, but it's, it's real true. Um, and unless we're willing to stick our neck out, we're not gonna make progress and we're not gonna influence other people. We're not gonna impact others. And so my challenge to you this week is say, man, let's make a difference. Wherever we are, let's make a difference and bless other people. Now I'm gonna pray and then after I pray, we're actually gonna kind of put into practice a little bit what we're talking about in just, just a real small, simple way. And so let me pray and then, then I'll kind of tell you what the plan is. Heavenly Father, God, we're so thankful that you love us. We're so thankful that you care about us. Thank you, God, that you know where we are on the you. And even though we may feel like you've abandoned us, we may question where you are, God, you know exactly where we are and, and you've got us where we are even today for a reason, for a purpose. And so Heavenly Father, I would just ask that today, God, you would help us open our eyes and just realize, okay, in my school, in my job, in my family, in my community, in this country, you've got us here right now for a reason. In the world, you have us right now for a reason, to accomplish your purposes. And one of the ways that you accomplish your purposes is through us. So that as you bless us, you can bless, we can bless other people. God, give us the courage to bless others. Give us the courage to stick our necks out and, and actually do something to make a difference for you. God, thank you that you promise us that the end result is gonna be amazing. Give us the courage to follow you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.